everybody, I'm Dr. Deb, and welcome to another episode of PTSD and Beyond. Welcome to the PTSD and Beyond podcast, where we give you insights into post-traumatic stress, trauma recovery, healing, and beyond. I'm Dr. Deb Lind, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind, touch your heart, and connect with your spirit, and also give you a greater understanding of yourself and others on this healing and recovery journey walked by so many of us before, wounded healers with lived experience and heroes. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into possibilities and purpose, hope, and inspiration. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. One last thing, guys, before we dive into today's episode, if you'd like an ad-free experience and like early access to new episodes and special events, I want to let you know you can join us at patreon.com. That is patreon.com forward slash PTSD and beyond. All right, let's do it. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Deb here with PTSD and Beyond, and we have another fabulous guest. I got to tell you something. You know, people talk about women in power positions, right? And the gratitude and the generosity that sisterhood we share with one another. We really do that here at PTSD and Beyond. And don't get me wrong, we, we also, you know, want to give a shout out to our, our counterparts, our, our other genders, if you will, who do support us. But there's something special when another woman connects with a woman and says, hey, you know what? You're doing some really epic, amazing stuff. And would you like to be in? And today's guest today is Dr. Susan Pollock. She's a psychotherapist in private practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Go Sox and go Pats also. Um, everybody knows I'm a big Red Sox fan, so I got to throw that in there. She's also a longtime student of meditation, yoga, who's been integrating the practices of meditation and psychotherapy since the 1980s. I mean, come on, right? This is a person who's in her own right, a pioneer. I want to also mention that she's the co-founder and teacher at the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion, which is what we're going to talk about today at Harvard Medical School and Cambridge Health Alliance. Guys, let's give a heartfelt PTSD and beyond welcome to Dr. Susan Pollack. Dr. Pollack, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much. And let me return the shout out. I think you're doing amazing work, Deb, and glad to support you. Thank you so much. It really is a true pleasure to connect. And before we started recording, we talked about some of the research and then the books. And I do want to let listeners know that all the hyperlinks to Dr. Pollock's information is in the summary bio. So feel comfortable to go check out their work, their research, their books. There's a lot of great stuff, especially what really caught my eye to being a parent is self-compassion for parents. I mean, we really don't do that. We're so focused on the kids, but talk with us a little bit about yourself and then, you know, some of your work and some of your books. Sure. And we can sort of dive into the parenting awesome. issues because what I'm finding now is the pandemic was so hard for so many parents yeah. and parents feel like you know, they weren't good enough and their kids are struggling or dealing with depression or anxiety. So I am really glad to talk about that as well. Awesome. So let me sort of give you a quick, um, somewhat humorous snippet of how I got started with all this and how, how it 
developed because I agree with you. I think I'm, I have been somewhat of a pioneer. Absolutely. So when I was in elementary school, um, my aunt, who was a journalist in New York City, was sent on assignment to cover like the first meditation teacher who opened a center in the city. Oh, wow. So this was really fascinating. So I grew up in suburban Boston. I'm also a huge Red Sox fan. And I had a pretty conventional childhood. So my aunt takes me into this center in the middle of New York City. And it's full of people dancing and singing and incense. And it was like, what is this? And then the teacher comes out and he has like, he's Indian. He has beautiful flowing gray hair and beads. And it's like, we don't do this in Boston. Who is he? And then he started talking about love and peace and kindness. And I thought, oh boy, this is different. Um, And he became a very popular teacher in the the 70s. His name was Swami Satchanananda. And there's actually a poster of him. And I think this was before Photoshop. So I think it may have been real. So he's on a surfboard and there are waves. And he's perfectly balanced. And there's a um, slogan that says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. I thought, well, this is really interesting. So he was my first introduction to meditation and yoga. And also beyond that was a sense of joy. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a pretty serious, you know, household where you worked and you studied and you were serious. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh boy, what about having some fun? Right. What about some joy? Um, And then my aunt being this journalist was always on the lookout for new teachers. So whenever I would visit her in New York for um, holiday, for vacation, she's like, oh, Susan, you know, there's this Tibetan master. Come hear him. There's this Zen teacher. There's this Sufi dancer. So I basically, one of my friends joked that I received a PhD in comparative religion um, in my childhood. And then I really liked it. And I became a religion major. um, And then I went to Harvard Divinity School because I was really fascinated by spirituality. And what happened there is my advisor said, look, Susan, I know you're really good at this stuff, but there are no jobs. And in fact, our graduates, and this was at Harvard, only 10% of our graduates will have jobs. So she said, if there's anything else you can do, do it. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, because that was sort of my, my dream. But I was taking a psychology course then and became very interested in the psychology of women. And I thought, okay, let me check this out. Got myself into therapy. And I thought, oh, this might be a really good way to spend one's life. So I started working with the sort of, uh, you know, really one of the first 
feminist psychologists um, to do research on women. And this was Carol Gilligan and her, her sort of life-changing, field-changing book was called In a Different Voice. Mm-hmm. And what Carol realized was that the field of psychology was based on the study of men. Yeah, most of the assessment instruments that, uh, yes, that are used to determine um, whatever they're assessing. If you look yeah. at the population, right? Um, yes, correct. <laughs> exactly. And one of the things Carol joked about and wrote about was not only was our field of psychology based on the study of men, it was based on the study of college sophomores. Oh, wow. So there were really no metrics or no research done on the psychology of women. So Carol and you know her team of young students sort of launched into studying the psyches of women. Um, and I became more and more interested. And actually, we were talking before we started recording about Roe v. Wade. Carol, in the 1980s, before anyone was looking at this, this was even before Roe, was studying women and abortion and the impact. And this is in um, in a different voice, the impact that abortion had mm-hmm. and how hard it was for women to make this decision. And this was before abortion was legal. So she was a real pioneer in looking at abortion. And then I became interested because I um, was writing a, a paper on her abortion data on trauma. So that really got me interested in trauma and the trauma that women have experienced. And in fact, I this is sort of a sweet story. I uh, have stayed in touch with Carol and I was in New York City um, a few months ago and said, you know, can I take you out to lunch? Um, and Carol's in her late 80s now when we were talking. This was before Roe was overthrown. We were talking about the abortion study and talking about women and trauma and how many women have suffered sexual abuse. And she said, Carol was, has always been brilliant at nailing one-liners. And she said, you know, Susan, we used to call that growing up. Wow. You That's eye-opening right there, you know. I thought, oh, my God, you know, that was before we called it trauma. That was before we called it date rape. Right. It was growing up. And I thought, Carol, you nailed it. Yeah. And that was another example of how we haven't seen women's experience. And then as I continued my studies, I met Judith Lewis Herman who I think of as the godmother of trauma theory and research. And that was before anyone knew what trauma was. And I'd say to someone, oh, I I work with trauma. And they'd say, well, what is that? Like an auto accident? Right. So I mean, or a veterans thing. How many times when I say to someone, you know, when they ask about what is PTSD and beyond and, um, 
before they, I can even respond to them, they'll say, oh, that must be a vet thing. And I have to do, not have to, but there's an education element of everything that we do to educate um, just regular people about what is trauma and how, 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 how does this happen? Yeah, right? exactly. So I think our task and our, sounds like we've been on parallel paths has been to educate, or so mm-hmm. we call it psychoed. Right. And Judith Herman started this wonderful center at Harvard. I've been working with her, you know, for decades. I started working with her in 1990 called Victims of Violence. And this was really the first center in the country where we developed a way to educate people about trauma and more than that, to heal it. We started trauma groups and we started focusing on trauma-informed therapy, which then just grew and grew and grew into trauma-informed mindfulness. And your listeners may be interested in reading my essays on psychology today on things we can do to begin to heal trauma. So I've started doing trauma work basically before anyone knew what it was. Yes, very much so, which is why I'm also extremely excited to have you share your wisdom with our our listeners, because one of the things that um, people will often say in the community is, how do I find a therapist that's trauma-informed in addition to having a peer support group, which is wonderful, when they want to dive deeper into their healing and have more resources, how do they find someone that's trauma-informed? Because we talked before the recording that, you know, there's so many people now that are having the trauma-informed shingle, if you will, um, as part of their practice, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are in fact trauma-informed. What are some things that people can look for? I mean, we're going to have, um, of course, all the links to in your summary bio so people can actually self-advocate and become self-educated. What are some things that people could do when they're looking for an ask specifically when they're um, talking with other therapists out there to see whether or not somebody in fact is trauma-informed? Yeah, well, there are a number of relatively new types of therapy that are amazing. And one of the people I studied with, and I think his way of treating trauma is brilliant, is Richard Schwartz. I'm sure you've heard of him. Yes. He does internal family systems. And I feel that those of us who've been trained in IFS or internal family systems um, are really good trauma therapists. The other system I like is EMDR. Yes. Started by Francine Shapiro for eye movement desensitization reprocessing. That is another technique that is great. And recently, I'm sure you've heard of him as well. I've been interested in the work of Thomas Hubel, who is doing global trauma healing. Right. And looking at what we call ancestral trauma and legacy trauma. So I think the field has come so far since 1990 when I started. But um, Internal Family Systems has a website. You can get lists of trauma-informed, trained therapists in your area through IFS. EMDR also has a good website. So I think if you just 
you try to find someone who has been doing this work for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, that will help. I my feeling is the working with trauma is really complex. So I would want someone who has some significant experience. Yeah, and in some substance. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Can you talk with us a little bit about transitioning to um, the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion? You mentioned already about joy. Sometimes I think that we become so serious on the journey of our of healing that um, we're clouded based on that. What gets clouded is the joy and then also the compassion, whether self-compassion and or compassion for others. I think in our group, especially our community, we're really good at extending compassion to others, but we're not so good about extending compassion to ourselves. Exactly. And this is where self-compassion comes in. So another link for um, for you is mindful self-compassion, which was started by um, Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. Um, and we've created, because I was there in the very beginning as well, these eight-week courses that you can take on learning self-compassion, which is a very clear, um, simple way to begin to work self-compassion into your life. And there's also a center for mindful self-compassion. And you can link to that as well. Kristen Neff has an amazing um, research site. People can just go on her um, website and read all the research she has turned out. Um, So that is another fabulous um, resource. And what's really exciting is we're expanding self-compassion. So I have a book on self-compassion for parents. We also have um, books now on self-compassion for teens. Oh, wow. A friend of mine, Michelle Becker, has a book coming out in a few months on self-compassion for couples. So it's we're bringing self-compassion to children. So it's a growing, a growing business. So if people tend to beat themselves up, self-compassion may be the way to go. But let me circle back to your question and tell you another great story. And I think of this story as being about the power of persistence and the power of grassroots effort and community effort and not trying to do it alone. So when I started at Cambridge Health Alliance, Harvard Med School, I was teaching in this program called Program for Psychotherapy. And this about was early 1990s. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if someday we could have a center for mindfulness and compassion? And there was really at this point, no or virtually no interest in mindfulness and virtually no research. Um, But then over time, as you know, there was more and more research and people became interested. So with some friends and colleagues, I was president for a decade of something called the Institute for Meditation Psychotherapy. We kept trying to get mindfulness on the map in psychotherapy. And we kept presenting ideas to the powers that be at the hospital and the door would slam and the door would slam and the door would slam. 
And then finally, it there was a mass. So I've worked with my colleagues, Chris Germer and Ron Siegel, you may want to interview as well. Um, Ron also does wonderful work on trauma and Chris really um, is behind the self-compassion course. Kristen did the research and Chris is the clinician. We kept trying. And then finally, there was a young intern who was coming to do training at the hospital. And the CEO of the hospital said, so what appeals to you young hipsters? What would you really like? And this young trainee said, well, we were interested in mindfulness. And the CEO of the hospital, believe it or not, this was in like 2011, said, what's that? Wow. I know, I know. Um, (laughs) So the young intern explained, because he was interested in meditation. And at this point, we had a drop-in meditation group, and we were doing um, small retreats of yoga, meditation. So he explained what it was. The CEO said, oh, gee, this may fit into our hospital, because the hospital is one of these free care hospitals where we're really there for people who are struggling. We presented our, you know, interest to the CEO. He brought out his chief financial officer to come. And he said, I think this could be a great fit. Wow. So 20 years of planting the seeds. And at this point, we had a community. So we started the Center for um, Mindfulness and Compassion at um at Cambridge Hospital. And at this point, there were also all these groups. Because one of the things that makes a huge difference when people are recovering from trauma is to have support. Right. So, and one of the really wonderful things I think that we did is we brought um, mindfulness out of psychiatry. Because if it's just in psychiatry, it gets siloed. Mm. And this is really the brainchild of um, the now executive director, Zepshin um, Olivier of our Center for Mindfulness and Compassion. He said, let's teach this to the primary care docs. Oh, wow. If the primary care docs see what effect it has on them, they will refer out. So this is exactly what happened. We got the primary care docs to take a eight week course in mindfulness. They saw the benefits and then they started referring their patients to our groups to deal with diabetes, to deal with high blood pressure, to deal with chronic pain, to deal with anxiety. Um, And they started taking our classes and we created um, a whole program on mindfulness for primary care. Wow. It was a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that had been around for years, started by Zindel Siegel. We started teaching mindful self-compassion. And then we had follow-up groups. So we had these training programs that people could come to and that would be covered by insurance. And then our center, um, Zev is an astounding fundraiser, Um, our center started doing research. And one thing that people may really like 
is our grand rounds. And you can find this through if people Google or you can find the link for grand rounds um, at Center for Mindfulness and Compassion Harvard Med School. And we have a really wonderful group of people who come twice a month to talk about research and research recently on addiction. But that was our talk a week or so ago. Research on migraines, oh, research wow. on refugees. I mean, you name it. And we're trying to bring people in. And we've been getting wonderful, wonderful meditation teachers to come. So on um, the next one we have coming up is Kate Johnson, who is an astounding, brilliant, charismatic teacher. The f- person we had to kick off our series this fall was Kara Julingo, who is um, also um, done a lot of really great work on climate change. Right. And she has a new book that's come out called You Were Made for These Times. So that is bringing in the joy and the hope and the can-do sense of we can make a difference. Yes. We don't have to be victims. No, that's correct. And this is where the joy and compassion and self-compassion really come in. Like, we can change our systems. Yes. Yes, correct. Uh, to make a difference. The other thing that I hear you saying to Dr. Pollock is we have a, a hashtag that we like to use, uh, whether it's, you know, on social Twitter or uh, other social media mediums is stronger together. And, you know, mm-hmm. we hear other phrases like, you know, you're not alone reach out. There's a vulnerability that, that happens when, when someone's not in a, uh, in the moment in a healthy state and they want to reach out, but their experiences or are whatever challenge that they're um, experiencing in that moment prevents them from actually taking that step. So we continuously share stories such as this one that reiterate and illustrate what a stronger together mean, because when people can see and hear, and they do, I think that one of the things that people assess with the podcast and our guests, such as yourself, is the level of authenticity. I mean, you can talk about it, but people feel it. They can hear it with the conviction. They can hear it with the softness tone of your voice that, yes, this is a safe place. They can hear it with, you know, um, how do we actually conduct ourselves in our candor that um, this is a safe place to be able to then reach out and say something like, I heard you on PTSD and beyond you know, I'd, I'd like to, you know, listen to one of the grand rounds, or I'm going to reach out to this other practitioner and provider mm-hmm. that actually in itself, um, helps reduce someone's reactors can, as well as anxiety mm-hmm. and increases that self-confidence that you're talking about that, you know what? Yes, we are stronger together. Yes. Here's another illustration to show we in fact are, and I'm going to go ahead and take that next step. Yeah, exactly. I love it. And I think the two, you know, it's almost like stages. You start out saying you're not alone, which is nice, but then doing exactly what you're trying to do. How can I connect with people who will support me, who will hear me, 
who will help me feel stronger together. Right. And that's one of the reasons I love groups, because even if we're meeting on Zoom, we still have a community. Right. We still have like-minded people. We can still form friendships. Right. Absolutely. We're getting ready to wrap up here. If, if there were, you know, two to three other nuggets that you'd like to share with listeners today, what might that look like? Do you like poetry? Love poetry. Okay. So let me pull this out. I was listening um, to this trauma summit that actually was organized by Thomas Hubel. And he had a poet that I didn't know. um, And now I absolutely love whose name is Danusha Lamaris. And this poem, which you can find on the web easily, is called Small Kindnesses. So let me leave you with this. And it's, I love her language. I mean, it's so connected. It's so real. It's not, people think of poetry as being sort of fancy or highfalutin. This is daily language. So small kindnesses. I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by. Or how strangers still say, bless you, when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we are saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them and for them to smile back. For the, rate, for the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder. And for the driver of the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now. So far from tribe and fire. Only these brief moments of exchange What if they are the true dwellings of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat. Go ahead, you first. I like your hat. That's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? I just thought she nailed the the compassion. Yeah, the, we the, want to embody for the essential other. elements. Yeah. What really matters. Yeah. And she got what really matters, which is what we're talking about. We're stronger together and we're stronger when we're kind to each other. Absolutely. Dr. Pollock, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. Thank you so much for being here and uh, sharing all this information, your wisdom, and again, your um, leadership to others to aspire. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing your work and let's share our joy as well. We all need it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. 
Guys, this is Dr. Deb with PTSD and beyond. Please make sure to subscribe and like, as well as to click on to Dr. Pollock's information. Let her know that you heard her on PTSD and beyond. And guys, we'll see each other again next week. You all make it a good one. Take what resonates and go beyond.